Charismatic, passionate, has integrity, humble, servant, faithful, inspiring, persevering, positive, flexible, driven. This is who we are that call ourselves leaders. Helping business leaders grow themselves, their team, and their profits. This is the Entree Leadership Podcast. Now, here is your host, Ken Coleman. Coming to you from the Music City, this is the podcast of leaders, by leaders, and for leaders. I'm Ken Coleman, thrilled to be with you. Coming up, our feature conversation is with Richard Sheridan. Richard is the author of Joy, Inc. and CEO of Menlo Innovations, and we share an excerpt from The Dave Ramsey Show on location at the Entree Leadership Master Series. And we pulled this because Dave did the show live here at our Entree Leadership Conference Center and Studios and focused the entire show on small business. And he shares a few minutes towards the end of the show that we thought was so good, and we know it's going to encourage your heart. So that's a special treat, and that is coming up. Hey, folks, as always, we want you to connect with us on Twitter, at Entree Leadership, at Ken Coleman. You can also email us, podcast at entreleadership.com. I'm thinking about this interview. I I wanted to share something with you folks because I saw an article recently on Forbes.com from Steve Denning. He's a contributor, and the article is entitled How to Be Happy at Work. And in this article, he cites a study and an article that he recently saw. Now, the article that he cites in his entry here on Forbes.com is by Tony Schwartz and Christine Porath. It was a New York Times article entitled, Why You Hate Work. And here's the context. So Schwartz and Porath are managerial consultants. And so they partnered with Harvard Business Review to do a study on happiness at work, or in other words, why people aren't happy at work. And this is very interesting. The study came up with four main drivers of happiness. Number one, physical needs. The physical opportunities to regularly renew and recharge. The second was recognition. The need to feel valued and appreciated for your contributions. The third was autonomy. The need to be able to focus in a sustained way and define where to work. And then finally, purpose. The spiritual need to feel connected to some kind of higher purpose at work. Now, the survey found that the most important of these four, I don't think this will be any surprise to you leaders out there, The most important was purpose. Employees who derive meaning and significance from their work were more than three times as likely to stay with their organizations. Now, this was the highest single impact of any variable in the survey. That was a direct quote from the survey. Employees who derive meaning and significance from their work were more than three times as likely to stay. These employees also reported 1.7 times higher job satisfaction and were 1.4 times more engaged at work. Now, I don't think this is groundbreaking information, but I wanted to share it with you because when this book, Joy, Inc., came across my desk and our producer, Eric Anthony, said, hey, what do you think of this book? Uh, I, I, I fell in love with the title, Joy, Inc., and the subtitle, How We Build a Workplace People Love. And you're going to hear in this conversation with Richard that it's not just about making people happy with foosball tables and massage tables every once in a while, although they certainly do work on the environment. But it is just as much about the outward work, the purpose, the passion to do something that matters. And can I just be very, very authentic here and just straight up with you leaders out there? You can go to all the conferences you want to go to. You can hire trainers buy books, and all those things are great and necessary. 
But if you as a leader don't figure out how to turn the pilot light of significance on in the people that you lead, you'll never fully see the impact of your organization because those people won't be fully functioning. Every one of us is just a little boy or a little girl who came into this world with a desire to matter, a desire to be significant, to do something that matters. And we know that it doesn't have to be fame or fortune or power, but we can all do something that matters. And to the extent that within the mission of your organization, you can tie to their unique strengths, their unique passions, and they come to work every day feeling that what they do matters because what you do matters. That's the narrative. That's the story. So it's not about foosball tables and vacation packages. I would tell you that the two most important of those four, excuse me, physical needs, recognition, autonomy, purpose, it's recognition. People need to feel valued and appreciated. But more importantly, they need to feel valued and appreciated because they know and you know that their work and your work matters. I'll wrap this thought up with a quote from Franklin Delano Roosevelt, maybe one of the greatest American presidents, who once said that happiness lies in the joy of achievement and the thrill of creative effort. Don't ever forget that people need to experience and you men and women who are leaders need to continually feel the joy of achievement and the thrill of creative effort, of creating something that matters. The book is Joy, Inc., How We Built a Workplace People Love. Get out your notebooks. Get out your pens and pencils. I think you need to hear this conversation. Here it is, Richard Sheridan. Well, Rich, it is a pleasure to have you with us, and I want to ask you to really set up the book, Joy, Inc. I I was captured by something in the foreword, and I think it tees you up to give us an overview as to why you wrote this book. In the foreword that was written, I guess, by a friend of yours, Carrie Patterson, who's the co-founder of Vital Smart, she says something on the first page of the foreword that just off the page to me, and it says, I told Rich it was time to take a stand for joy. Uh, and I love that. Um, talk to us about why you wrote this book. You know, uh, part of the why for me goes back to my personal history, Ken. I chose this profession when I was just a kid. I fell in love with computing when I was 13 years old back in 1971. Yes, in fact, there were computers back in 1971. <laughs> and uh, and I thought I, I, I was given a gift. I was given a gift of a passionate interest in an industry that was probably going to grow forever, and I was right about that. But I found out very quickly after I graduated from the University of Michigan with a couple of degrees in computer science and computer engineering that this industry, by and large, operates either in chaos or bureaucracy, and neither one of those produces the results that I had so passionately had an interest in when I was a kid. And so uh, part of this journey to joy for me is quite personal and maybe even selfishly personal. I wanted a job, a profession, a company that I wanted to work in, and I realized at a certain point in time, if I didn't create it myself, it was never going to happen. Mm. Well, and, and I think so many people who hear this, they immediately grasp onto this. It's at some point when I started what I'm doing, it was really about doing what I love, and then the pressure of real-life business, you know, and growing a company and, and dealing with people who are our employees and team members um, sets in. And, and all of a sudden, you know, something that you love to do gets buried by reality. Uh, did that happen at Menlo for you? 
didn't happen at Menlo. Uh, intriguingly, what happened was it happened during the course of my career. Uh, you know, I launched into this career. I got very excited about it. Uh, I thought it was going to go terrific. And at a certain point, I realized it was going in exactly the opposite direction I was hoping. I started reading books because I was looking for a solution to all the problems I was facing in my own career. And, uh, and it wasn't until about 1999 when I was a vice president of R&D for a public company here in Ann Arbor, Michigan, that I finally discovered some, what I will call now, some fundamental truths about running teams, leading teams, and particularly in the technology field. And I transformed the way that team worked. And uh, I'd probably still be doing that today were it not for the dot-com bubble burst, uh, which took everything away from me uh, except what I had learned. And I knew I could do it again, and that's when we formed Men Motivation. So from day one at Menlo, we started the company with the philosophies, the practices, the mission, the focus, uh, what we still enjoy today and what I describe in, in my book. This is so powerful for folks to grasp because you were very intentional about culture and culture translating into the results that the business wanted. So I want to kind of dive into some of the things as you create Menlo. You just It's coming out of this answer you just gave us, and so you set out to do something different. What were some of the intentional things, Rich, that you did very early on, at the very maybe beginning, that helped you develop the culture of joy? Yeah, we established a mission from almost day one, which was to end human suffering in the world as it relates to technology. You know, most people chuckle when I say that because they understand how much suffering there is around technology, right? You know, everybody's tortured mm-hmm. by a piece of software somewhere in their lives, either because it doesn't work right, it creates errors, or it's just hard to use. I didn't want that. I didn't want people to hate what I did as a profession. I wanted them to love it. So I think probably even subconsciously then and, and far more intentionally now we realize that the first thing we had to do was focus all of our energies outside of our organization to pick an external focus. So this isn't just about joy inside the workplace. It isn't about happiness for everybody who works for us. Those are important. There's no question. I don't believe you can produce joyful results as a team without having uh, a joyful team on the inside. Uh, That's important. But if that's all we get together for, if it's just about to make ourselves happy, we're probably going to fail. We had to pick this external focus. And, and the way we describe it, the joy for us is actually tangible and measurable. We want to delight the people for whom the software designing and building is intended. We want somebody to stop us on the sidewalk and say, I love what you guys did. And by choosing that external focus, we get to the thing that I think is kind of the core of humanity, and that is we all want to work on things that are bigger than ourselves. And I think that's so important to defining a culture, defining a company mission, and organizing a team around a concept and a purpose that energizes them every day. Folks, Rich just hit it on the head with that last statement. It's about significance. And leaders, you've got to keep that at the top of mind all the time. What's the significance uh, of your team? How do they feel of your work? It's a big deal, and I think you've really harnessed that, Rich. Um, One of the things I want to talk about, you mentioned failure just as a part of the answer, and it triggers a a part of the book that I, I think is so rich, and that is that you have intentionally, you and your leadership have created a culture where mistakes are embraced 
And that really creates tremendous freedom. I want you to yeah, talk well, about I that. Well, I think what kills most companies, what kills most company cultures, which is the essence of most management systems on planet Earth, is this idea that fear motivates teams. Artificial fear, manufactured right. fear, the fear of going around saying, hey, how's it going? What you working on? You're staying this weekend. Are you almost done? That kind of annoying, managerially created fear destroys the morale of teams. What we look at is to say, no, let's, let's pump fear out of the room. If we pump fear out of the room, a team starts to trust one another. If they trust one another, they begin to collaborate, and now you get what everybody wants. You get innovation, you get creativity, you get imagination, you get invention. And so by telling the team we want to make mistakes faster, we're not telling them we want to make mistakes. You know, that's not our purpose to make mistakes. What we acknowledge is, look, we're human. We're going to make mistakes. We're going to make them all day long. Let's make them quickly. Let's acknowledge them when they make them. Let's not put out search parties to figure out who made the mistake and, you know, snuff it out. Let's embrace the mistake by making it quickly so we can correct it while it's still small. We're, we're going to make mistakes. There's no question. Every human team is going to make mistakes. Let's just embrace that and say, so let's make them quickly. Let's, let's volunteer our mistakes in front of our peers so that everybody can, you know, say, yep, awesome, great, you found a mistake, let's move on, let's correct it rather than let's form the search party and the posse and figure out, you know, who did this. Mm. One of the light bulb moments for me in, in reading through the book, Rich, chapter four, I absolutely love it. The title of the chapter jumped off the page at me as well. It's entitled Conversations, Rituals, and Artifacts. And there's a statement at the top of the page, 67. And you wrote this, Rich, you said, rituals should reinforce cultural values. I think that's so fantastic. So with that statement kind of as the uh, overarching summary here, unpack conversations, rituals, and artifacts and how those play out in the culture. So for us, uh, what I think in many ways, Memo for me has been a journey to almost the core of humanity. Uh, if you look at what sustains civilization and what has grown societies over time, it's not bureaucracy. It's not the elimination of chaos through rules and regulations. It's the fine human traditions of storytelling, of rituals, of ceremonies. I mean, it is the essence of good cults, not bad cults. And so what drives our rituals and ceremonies is our culture, a culture of openness and transparency. So we have this one big open room. There are no cubes. There are no offices. I sit out at a five-foot table in the middle of the room with everybody else. There's no uh, gifted C-suite. There's no barriers to human communication. So, for example, at stand-up, it's this circle gathering of everybody in the room called by a dartboard on the wall, uh, which is, you know, in some sense very democratic, all right, because there isn't somebody in charge of calling it. It's just this clanging symbol going off and into the room, and everybody says, oh, it's time for stand-up. We get up, we gather in a circle. Uh, we pass around a plastic Viking helmet, which is part of our uh, sort of our lore now is this two-handled Viking helmet. And why? Because we work in pairs. We reinforce that by reporting out in pairs, and it's respectful. Uh, whoever has the Viking helmet, everybody else respects it. It's their turn to talk. And if you want to talk twice, you actually move around in the circle to get ahead of the Viking helmet again. You don't interrupt. And so uh, it, it goes around. It's quick. We hate meetings. That's so part of our culture. Uh, so uh, when we have this one meeting a day, we keep it short. Mm. 
I love that. I want to talk about interviewing people and hiring. And sometimes we just focused on getting the right people and, and we hope that our hiring process, you know, kind of works, but maybe we don't dive deep enough on it. And when you're as intentional, Rich, as you guys seem to be at Menlo, uh, I'm just curious if you would share with our leaders who are listening in today some tried and true processes in your hiring process itself that has really worked to identify the right people. Yeah, I, I think- think hiring practices in general, that from how do you advertise for the positions, how do you review resumes, how do you schedule interviews, what do you do when the people are here, and even how you go all the way through to the onboarding process uh, is probably one of the most broken aspects of most organizations. I hate a traditional hiring process, what I call two people sitting around lying to each other for a couple of hours. You know, you're telling me what a great, you know, person you are, and you're a team player and all this sort of thing, and I'm telling you what a great company this is to work for. And, you know, and that's often the highlight of most people's jobs. A particular company is the day of the interview. Not the first day in the job. Those usually suck. Um, not, you know, once you're enmeshed in the team and all that sort of thing. It's the day of the interview. That's the day you were the most excited and I think that's sad for most people to be the most excited about a job the day of the interview. For us, what we said was, look, this is such a weird environment. We work on this big open room. We work in pairs. We work to a computer. The traditional interview process just isn't going to work. And quite frankly, the traditional interview process, certainly in my industry, is a skills match interview process. You know, are you an Oracle 9.1.1.3 service back to expert, right? And if you want to build an intentional culture, What you have to do first is fit your interview process to your culture. You have to make the first part of your interview process a culture fit interview, not a skills match interview. Skills are important. I don't want to deny that. We need programmers who know how to program and that sort of thing. But if they don't fit our culture, I don't care if they're a genius at programming. I don't want them on my team. Mm. Boy, that is a statement. Yeah. So what we do is we simulate the work environment. So we start teaching our culture from the minute you start interviewing from us. What we do is we do a mass interview. We bring in 30, 40, 50 people at a time, and we pair them during the interview with another interview candidate, and we give them the weirdest instruction ever. We say, your job is to get the person sitting next to you a second interview. And, of course, you're sitting there saying, hey, wait a minute. I'm the one who wants the second interview. <laughs> but this is improv right. theater at its, at its best, right? The rules of improv theater say your job, as you step onto that stage to be the least important person here and make everyone else look good. And that's what we want here. We want to build a team. Here, we first day in the interview, you're, you're sitting there and you're like, hey, make the person next to you look good. And don't worry, we can see that. We're going to see the effect you have on these other people. We give you something to work on. We don't even ask questions during an interview. You go through the entire interview process here, we never ask you a single question. And uh, why? Because we simply watch you work. We give you and your peer interview candidates something to work on while one of my team members watches. And these aren't trick tasks. These are simple, practical exercises that will cause you to dive into the work because we want to watch and see how you collaborate with another human being because this is so important to our culture. Wow. I want to ask you, Rich, uh, if you could give us an example that pops to the top of your mind when you put these uh, interviewees, if you will, to the test of you've got to make the other person look good uh, and get them a second interview. What does that look like? Give us an example of how they begin to try well, to manifest that. both sides of the equation. Let's review the negative behaviors, and we actually tell people this. We want them to succeed. And my daughter heard me say that once, and she's like, 
seriously, Dad, you have an interview process where you want people to succeed? You know, because she's been through so many crappy interviews where it seems like everybody just wants you to fail, right? And she's like, what a concept, Mm -hmm. right? You know, an interview process that you're encouraging people. You're giving them all the elements that they need to succeed, right? So what we tell you is, look, don't grab the pencil out of the other person's hand. You know, we give you one piece of paper, one pencil to work on. If you want, ask politely. And it's amazing. People totally ignore that. We literally watch people reach across the table, grab the pencil out of their hand, ignore their pair partner. So those are the negative behaviors we look at um, or the ones mm-hmm. who dominate the conversation. What we see, the good behaviors, are the ones where somebody says, well, tell me what you think. I, I'm thinking it could go this way, but I'd love to hear your thoughts. What experiences do you have? I'll give you an example of somebody on the team who made who just was a shining example, uh, Renee came through our interview process, and what we noticed in the reflection exercise we do as a team after the interviews, what we found was the people who struggled did better when they were paired with Renee. As we went through the interview, we found everybody we were talking about maybe struggled during the interview process, except when they were paired with Renee, because uh, we switched the pairs three times during this interview process, so there's three different pairings, 20 minutes each, before we send all the interview candidates home. Uh, Renee really calmed them down. Renee used a little bit of humor to settle them down, and then they dove into the work, and she was just really supportive, inquisitive, and that sort of thing. We just saw this pattern, and we realized, okay, here's Renee, who's a great Menlonian. Right? We could just see it uh, in the interview process, and she's been here for several years now, and I can tell you she still acts like that. Wow. Hmm. Before we let you go, Rich, I, I want you to address problems. Because you, when you see the name of a book as Joy, Inc., <laughs> How We Built Workplace People Love, I mean, this is a positive book. I mean, there's just no question that this will encourage you folks. But the reality is, is that we all are going to deal with problems. Uh, I love the quote at the beginning of Chapter 15 that is entitled Problems. It's by uh, uh, Ari Weinswag. Am I saying that correct? co-founder of Stingerman's here in Ann Arbor. All right, so Weinswag. So I finally got that right. I'm hooked on phonics now. Uh, But I love the quote. It says, success means you get better problems, but there will always be problems. And Rich, I just want you to to speak to us uh, with the heart of an encourager through your experience to entrepreneurs who are listening right now, leaders who are listening right now, followers who are listening right now, and they are in the midst of problems. What would you say Uh, to them? You know, what I talk about in the book, what we practice at Menlo, what I see in the best-performing organizations is the goal is not to eliminate problems. It's impossible. These are human beings. Everybody's going to be in a different situation. I will say we have every single problem pretty much that every other company has. What we try and do is create systems that discover those problems sooner so we can expose them soon enough to begin working on them. And, of course, it also takes the courage of leadership to step into the danger and start working on the problems that you discover. These are the opportunities for growth. This is the opportunity for leadership to step in and say, what can we do to help? How can we grow these people? How can we get them through these challenges? These are the good problems to have. These are the ones. These are the first world problems that people like to talk about, right? Awesome. We got a couple people on our team that are good contributors, great Menlonians, and we got to figure out how to grow them into leaders. These are good problems to have. Great advice, Rich. Really, really where we need to be and be constantly thinking about this important topic of joy in our personal and professional lives. Thank you so much for challenging us in this book and for spending time with us today. I am so honored to have been um, uh, with you today. 
All right, we want to thank Richard Sheridan, and this is always exciting because we love to give away books that we care about. I mean, you should see Eric and I as we play in these podcasts. We're high-fiving. We feel like little Santa Clauses because we love to give away books, and we want to thank uh, the publisher on this, as always, Portfolio, which is a Penguin imprint. They are giving away 20 books, and you know how we do it. You have to tweet the following phrase. Are we ready? At Entree Leadership Podcast makes me happy. The at Entree Leadership Podcast makes me happy. If you tweet that, you are entered to win one of the 20 books. Eric puts them in a big pot, and he pulls out 20 winners, and he'll make sure you get your book. So we're thankful for all of you for listening. I think this conversation is just the tip of the iceberg. We want you to go get the book. Joy, Inc. is the title, How We Built a Workplace People Love. Well, folks, I'm really excited to share this next little nugget. The Dave Ramsey Show, obviously, most of the time is focusing on helping people get out of debt, to plan for their future, to reset, if you will, their family trees. But every once in a while, we get a special treat because Dave, as you know, is the operating CEO of our company, over 430 employees. Oh, and by the way, he's also the host of the second largest radio show in the country. But Dave is a phenomenal leader. I've known him for a long time and now have the privilege to work with him. And so recently, we had our Entree Leadership Master Series. And Dave turned the radio show on our last day of the Entree Leadership Master Series into a small business radio show. Eric Anthony, our fantastic producer, brought this clip to me and Blake Thompson, our executive producer. And he said, what do you think? And I got to tell you, when I heard the clip, it just fired my soul. So I think it'll do that for you as well. Dave is responding in this clip to a caller who wants to know how to be a dream employee. Dave answers his question and then turns the focus on all of us. This is what Dave had to say. And in a sense, that's what these leaders have been doing with us here all week, is learning how to not just be an average leader, a typical leader, not with the typical problems. And we're not dealing. And how do you deal with the typical problems in a non-typical, excellent, passion-filled, owner, I care deeply about the income kind of way, where the vision is exposed, where things are moved and things are changed? Because that's what creates business. And for those of you that are wandering around America and you've watched too much television or you've believed politics for too long, business is not evil. Business that matters, business that is done right, is a holy endeavor. Because those business people, those evil business people, they're the ones that give you a job. And when they give you a job, America, they allow you to feed your children. Those evil business capitalists, they're the ones that allow you to feed your children. That's how you got your house. That's how you're saving money for your college education. Because those people dared to move a business from their living room or from their garage. They dared to rent a little space. They dared to walk out and print some business cards. They dared to walk out there in an over-regulated world, in an overtaxed world, and in the middle of that, try to survive and fight and claw and scratch and serve in the marketplace. And because of them, you have a job and you get to feed your family. So America, it's way past time for us to stop vilifying business people. Business should be considered one of the highest, most holy, most spiritual callings there is. Because you're going to walk into the marketplace, you're going to serve someone. And when you serve someone and they give you a certificate of appreciation with a president's face on it, you have done good. You have done good. 
And this idea that somebody making a profit is evil, I'm tired of the socialism message that is coming out of these college classrooms. I'm tired of it coming out of these political parties. I'm tired of it coming out of your left ears of some of your heads. Because you don't have a freaking clue. The whole time you're doing that, you're eating food that was produced by a capitalist that hooked a plow behind a dadgum tractor and made some corn grow. And so it is time, America, for us to stop vilifying these business people. They are why this country is great. As long as there are garages in America, there will be capitalism. Somebody's got an idea. There's a Bill Gates in his dorm room. There's a Michael Dell in his dorm room that's got an idea that'll change the world. Somewhere, there's another Mary Kay and another Jenny Craig. Somewhere, there's another Martha Stewart. They're all over the place. Are these perfect people? No, they're not perfect people. But they're doing more than some of you whiners. They're out there trying. They're out there doing stuff. They're out there moving things around. And they're putting up with the criticism of a bunch of do-nothings. So it's time, America. It's time we stand up and salute the people I've spent the week with here. This land is great because it is the home of the free enterprise system. You don't like it? Go visit some other countries. You'll see how that crap doesn't work. Try to get served in some of these countries where there is no incentive. Try to get, try to get some quality goods or a quality place to stay in some of these countries. They don't know what they're doing. And you guys are all walking around acting like we got this thing broken. It's not broken. It's freaking working. This is no longer an experiment, this thing called America. It's now a proven commodity. It's real. It's really happening. And you can stand up this morning and decide you're going to be in business, and instantaneously you are. Isn't freedom awesome? And if you serve poorly, your customers won't give you money. And you're out of business. Isn't that awesome? I think it's awesome when people go out of business because they suck. Because <laughs> I think it's just as awesome that when they do a great job, that they can live their dreams. And some of you get to work for them while they're living their dreams, and you cash their checks, and you get to live your dreams because of it, and have the highest standard of living on the planet that the world has ever known. So stop your freaking whining. Boy, oh boy, what a word from Dave Ramsey. Always a privilege to hear from Dave. And we're grateful to him for allowing us to share that clip. Uh, folks, listen, we want you to be a part of what we're doing here. We are so excited about the Entree Leadership community. Just came off the road for our fall events uh, and, and, and meeting many of you out there. Thank you so much for saying hi. Spread the word. That's why we exist. We want to encourage you men and women because we believe the economy rests on your very able shoulders. So I want to make sure you know about All Access. If you've never checked it out, this is our coaching community. It's an incredible deal. You don't have to sign a contract. There's no risk. Go to entreleadership.com, click on All Access, check it out. Also, I want to tell you about our brand new event called Entree Leadership Summit coming up next May. Incredible. John Maxwell, Pat Lencioni, Dr. Henry Cloud, Rabbi Daniel Appen, Chris Hogan, Christy Wright, all join Dave out in Southern California. Oh my goodness, I get to host that event. It's going to be great fun. EntreeLeadership.com slash summit. EntreeLeadership.com slash summit to learn more about it. It is already 75% sold. Hello, you better get there. It's going to be an incredible day. And I want to say, as always, we really appreciate you folks. As again, when we get out and meet you and we hear your stories, boy, we've talked all about enjoying your work. And I'm going to tell you something. Being a part of this podcast is work that matters. 
So we want to thank you. On behalf of our producer, Eric Anthony, and the entire Entree Leadership team, thank you for listening. We'll talk with you again very soon.